0: Good afternoon, I'm Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute. Thank you for being a part of this virtual town hall on how to reopen America. For our meeting today, Senator Jim Talent will be interviewing Dr. Arthur B. Laffer. Listeners who've been around Missouri for a while are familiar with our moderator, Senator Jim Talent. Senator Talent is best known at the Show Me Institute for being my husband, but in the state of Missouri, he's known because of his service for many years in both the U.S. House and Senate. While in the House, Jim chaired the Small Business Committee, where he was known as a leader in advancing policies affecting entrepreneurs, small businesses, and workers. Senator Talent, I'm gonna now turn the program over to you so you can introduce our other guest.
1: And I'm happy to do that, uh, Brenda. Welcome to everybody. Um, this is going to be a really interesting and informative session. I've been looking forward to it ever since we lined it up. And it's a great pleasure for me to, to introduce Art Laffer, who uh, I could talk the entire hour about Art's accomplishments, so I'm going to telescope them down a lot. Uh, He received his BA in economics from Yale and his MBA and PhD in economics from Stanford University. Um, Art served very early in his career in important positions in government. He was a consultant to the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Bill Simon, in the 70s, to Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, and to the Secretary of the Treasury, George Shultz. In fact, he and I were just uh, recollecting that he was the first ever to hold the title of Chief Economist at the Office of Management and Budget. That was under Mr. Shultz in the early 1970s. Uh, Art was a member of President Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board for both of uh, the president's terms in office. Uh, He was a founding member of the Reagan Executive Advisory Committee. for the presidential race of 1980, and he was an advisor to Margaret Thatcher uh, during her reforms in her time as prime minister in the UK. Uh, Well, uh, Art Laffer's economic acumen and influence in triggering a worldwide tax cutting movement in the 1980s have earned him the distinction in many publications as the father of supply side economics. There is no economist in modern times who has had a greater impact on public policy I can testify to that myself, uh, that his ideas uh, and his skill in communicating them have shaped the thinking of government leaders for at least as long as I've been involved in public affairs, which goes back to 1984. Art has authored a number of books. He's received more awards than I have time to mention, but I do want to say uh, that he received a well-deserved Presidential Medal of Freedom last July. He's the founder and chairman of Laffer Associates, an economic policy research and consulting firm, as well as Laffer Investments. And welcome, Art, uh, to our meeting today.
2: Thank you very much, Senator. It's a pleasure being here with you. You So the way way we do this is
1: I'm going to ask you um, three or four questions just to sort of get the discussion off the ground. And then we're going to reserve most of the time for questions. I think you're going to find our audience extremely well-informed and very interested in your views on the economy. Uh, Maybe we could start off, you just did uh, a report, it's pretty hot off the presses, uh, with Steve Moore about, uh, entitled, When and Where Will the Recovery Happen? So maybe you could take a few minutes and just hit the high points of that report for those in in the
2: audience who haven't read it. Sure. I mean, the economy itself, I think, will suffer from next quarter as well as this quarter. We could down quite a bit. Uh, But given that it's a pandemic, and given that the damage done by the CARES Act is not all that great, uh, I think it'll go down for two quarters, Then I think the economy will come back. If you look at the stock market, and the stock market the last couple days have been down a lot, but the stock market is not predicting anything like the Great Depression. It's not predicting anything even as bad as the Great Recession. Uh, There are lots of periods when the stock market has dropped even far further than this, and that the output effects, I believe the market is telling us they're going to be Uh, Not long-lasting, and they're going to bounce back very quickly. Uh, I then look at all the states, and you know I've been working on the states for a long, long time. Uh, Rex Sinkfield and Jeanne Sinkfield and I and Steve Moore did a book called The Wealth of States, where we looked at from about a 35,000 foot of how states behave. And when you look at the states, they break up into two basic categories, uh, which most of us call blue states and red states, but it's really pro-growth and anti-growth states. And there is some overlap between blue and red uh, in there. But the, the blue states, or the slope anti-growth states, include such things as Connecticut, New York, uh, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. These states, I believe, are gonna come back slowly. Uh, they have governors that are not pro-growth. They're gonna keep the states closed down for a long time. Uh, the pro-growth states, I think, are gonna come back quicker. Uh, these include states like Florida, like Nevada, uh, like some of the other states that have been very rapid growing states. Utah is phenomenal. And I think they're going to bounce back much quicker than the others. The The three states we look at independently, which are sort of fun, are California, Texas, and uh, New York. Now, when you look at New York, New York was just body slammed incredibly by the coronavirus. I mean, they, they, they've suffered more deaths, uh, deaths, per million population, twice as many as the next highest one. And the the damage done in New York was enormous. Plus, New York is a very anti-growth state, a very top-down dictatorial, if you will, government there. And we believe that New York will be very slow to recover and will be damaged for a long period of time. Uh, Texas, on the other hand, has had a real problem with oil prices. Those oil prices have dropped, and while it's a very pro-growth red state, uh, while it will come back, and it will come back because of those policies, oil is going to damage that state a lot. So we're going to give uh, Texas a, a slower recovery than the other pro-growth states. The shocker is California. California is in a situation where, you know, bottom line, in spite of their high taxes and all of this other stuff, uh, they have been very resilient over time. And I think California will do pretty well coming back from this uh, coronavirus uh, and uh, will bounce back. But The governments of these states really can determine how fast and how well these governments go back by opening up their states as soon as they possibly can to that. Now, the one thing we both Steve and I both recommend is that there should be a payroll tax waiver Mm -hmm. or holiday through December 31st to really incentivize people to go back to work and to incentivize companies to hire and retain and work people more uh, during a period of time, so the economy bounces back really quickly. Now, obviously, if people are quarantined or sequestered, no amount of tax cuts is going to work. Uh, but once the states start coming back and start rolling, our view is that that is the time you should use the payroll tax waiver and really jumpstart the economy. So that's where we come out on this, and uh, we think that states should do do the best they can to get get in line and start growing again.
1: Yeah, I was really interested and surprised to see um, the direct re- relationship that you chart between uh, what the, between the stock market and the gold price, and then the length and depth of recession. So I'd really recommend that uh, to our audience. It's
2: quite shocking, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if you hear the rhetoric on all the people, you would think this was the end of the earth, but the markets just aren't telling us that, Jim. They're just not. And yeah. I'm very glad they're not, because, uh, you know... When it first started, I was anticipating the, the markets to just continue down, down, down. But that's not what happened.
1: Yeah. Now, you, your report discounts with some qualification, I think, if I read it correctly, the risk of inflation. And I know there's a lot of people in, in, you know, in our audience and among our members who are concerned about that. Would you discuss
2: that a little bit? Sure. I, I, I sort of put it into context. I was I, on the show Life, Liberty, and Levin. Uh, Fox, which was sort of fun, and he is very much of a person who worries about the huge expansion of the money supply is going to lead to inflation sooner or later, and, you know, I've made that statement myself in the past, but there's very little evidence to support that. I mean, when you look at what happened with uh, Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen and now uh, uh, now Jerome Powell, uh, they have expanded the monetary base enormously over the last, what, 12 years, and there has been no increase in inflation. If you look at long-term bond yields, uh, the 10-year bond yields, the tips yield, there is no sign in bond prices or interest rates that reflect any type of inflation coming at all. And you know what I've what I've allowed myself to do, Jim, is to just think of it. The Fed has taken a feather quill pen with a nice silver tip, and it dipped it into the inkwell. It uh, opened up its vellum uh, uh, vellum ledger and took that pen and added a zero to every debit and to every credit. And how does that cause inflation? Mm -hmm. And what the Fed has done is the Fed has bought trillions of dollars worth of bonds, which are yielding maybe 25 basis points. Then they've opened up checking accounts to the member banks uh, by the exact same amount, which are yielding 25 basis points. And those two have exactly offset each other I don't see how that transactions per se is going to add to inflation overall. I just don't see it. Now I may be wrong and I've been wrong a of times in my life. I, I don't brag about them, but uh, I admit to them. Uh, but I just don't see inflation coming in uh, at this time. And you I could be wrong and could needs- uh, in the future, but gold prices are up maybe 14, 15%, mm-hmm. which is to me the panic not expected inflation. Now yeah. in the seventies, when gold prices were up, when we all went off gold and gold prices went from $35 an ounce to maybe three, $400 an ounce, we had really high inflation in the seventies and very early eighties. But that's, we we not, we weren't a gold standard before this and, and that type of inflation's not here. I don't think.
1: Do you think this, the, the fed needs to and will keep worrying about liquidity?
2: You know, I don't know why they worry about liquidity in general, but they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would like to see the fed do in this circumstances, whenever there's a, a business that is solvent, it has a good balance sheet. It had a good situation before the pandemic hit. And once it hits that pandemic, this, this business, because of a drop in demand for its products has a shortfall of revenues and they now have a liquidity crisis. That liquidity crisis, you don't want to morph into a solvency crisis. If they've been running the business well, I see no reason why they shouldn't have a loan guarantee by the Fed or a loan itself by the Fed to be paid back mm-hmm. uh, and just let them tide over this situation. That's what the Fed should do. That's just, if you remember, the, uh, the head of the London Economist in the 19th century was a man named Walter Badgett. And Badgett's line, famous line was, in times of crisis, discount freely. And that is exactly what the Fed should do and what I believe it basically has done. But it's also added huge amounts of liquidity in addition to that. I just want them to do that. Now, for companies that are not solvent, for companies that have not been managed well, I see no reason for anyone guaranteeing anything. Why should we bail out the investors and the lenders? And let's say something like Boeing. Uh, Boeing has this huge debt. It has its equity holdings there. Why should the federal government come in and bail out those bonds? and bail out all that equity by people who knew they were taking a risk when they lent to Boeing. They knew they were taking a risk when they bought Boeing stock. You know, this is America. It's a profit and loss system. And they made the wrong bet. Now we shouldn't have the taxpayers bail them out, I don't think. I don't care who owns Boeing. I do care that Boeing is operational, but it will be. Uh, I don't care who owns American Airlines either. Um, And I don't think the Fed or the Treasury should bail them out either. But. the companies are fine, but just let them be sold at a fire sale. And once that happens, then the new owners can adjust and do it. But uh, that's what Schumpeter referred to as creative destruction, which I think is very healthy for an economy like ours. So uh, for Zach,
1: two more questions briefly, and then we can start on questions from our, from our listeners. Uh, so Andy Puzner, our mutual friend, who, uh, who was the guest at our last town hall here, said he wanted me to ask you, what do you think about uh, expanding and making permanent immediate e- expensing of capital investment as, uh, as a way of helping us recover?
2: Yeah, I think that in general is a very good idea. Uh, expensing capital expenditures is a, is a great idea to increase the internal rate of return on an investment. But you know, in this time, in this place, Jim, uh, we aren't having a lot of profits. Mm-hmm. So, expensing capital expenditures 100% right off the bat won't increase the cash flows or profits to these companies at all because it, they don't have any profits to write their expensing off against. So, I don't think it'll have much of a of a hit to the economy. Now, in, in the olden days, I thought it would be very, very good and would be a huge plus. But right now, I don't think the problem is a is a shortage of profits. They don't have any profits. Right. And so good, expenses, good idea. And it's just... I don't think would do much right now.
0: I'm going to jump in just general. very quickly to remind people that if you go to the bottom of your screen, uh, on your Zoom screen, there's a box that says Q&A, and that's where you can submit your questions.
1: And finally, Art, what is it that you would recommend the government not do? What What, what is it that the government might do that, uh, that causes you to, uh, to wake up at night screaming oh. you
2: know, when you think about it? Very many things the government does that cause me to wake up screaming, sorry, but it really does. You know, whenever people make, whenever politicians make decisions, when they are either panicked or drunk, the consequences are rarely attractive. You know, there is no time in an economy when free markets are more important than during periods of crisis. That's when free markets really know what the heck they're doing and they do it. Yet that is the one time governments jump in and try to do all sorts of stuff. Now, I was in the White House in 1971 when Nixon went up to Camp David and came down with the tablets and he devalued the dollar. As you know, he put a uh, 10 percent import tax surcharge. He uh, precluded foreign made capital from the job development credit. Uh, He also put on wage and price controls, all of which did huge damage to the economy because he made a panic decision that was just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. Nixon also, there was a cheap burglary at the Watergate uh, in the O'Brien's office. It was a cheap, if he had just said it's a cheap burglary by guys who happen to be with creep, the committee to reelect the president, if he'd said that, it'd have blown over, but oh no. He's gotta make a panic decision to cover up, And it became the biggest crisis in US history. Jerry Ford is whip inflation now, which is a 5% tax surcharge on top of <laughs> panic decision that really cost us a huge amount. Jimmy Carter, if you'll remember, the National Energy Plan. I mean, how dumb is that? Made in a panic decision that Kurt did huge did. Jimmy Carter, do you remember when he went into Tehran with the helicopters and try to save the hostages and the catastrophe that that rose? Again, a decision made under panic circumstances that went awry. Now, with the real president, we had a real crisis in 1982, as you probably remember, Jim, and we had a real crisis there. The market collapsed. The economy was in freefall. Unemployment over ten percent. I mean, it was, And everyone, all the people, wanted Reagan to get rid of the third of the tax cuts to do a big spending program and all that stuff. And you know, the anti-Reagans, the four anti-Reagans—Baker, Bush, Dole, and Darman—if you remember those guys—all get rid of the third. Marty Feldstein and I had a debate in front of the president in the in the Roosevelt Room at that time. And and the president just very calmly said, "You know, I wasn't elected to raise your taxes." I'm not gonna do anything. And with that, the economy recovered. We had the biggest boom ever from 1983 on. In 87, we had the market crash 30% in three hours. Everyone wanted Reagan to do something. He said, Nope, I'm not. He said, His phrase was, and I think this is a riot, his phrase was, Don't just stand there, undo something. <laughs> and lo and behold, the economy recovered, no problems. Then we get the 2008, 2009. The two worst presidents in my mind were W and Obama, uh, and they bid 3.75 trillion in government spending and panicked, and obviously it caused a huge decline. The Great Recession was caused by government and the slowest recovery ever. Now we have this, this coronavirus, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that this government, uh, basically Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi, not the president, the president didn't want to do any of this stuff, I don't think. Uh, but permission and Nancy Pelosi did this huge uh, CARES Act, which is just a bailout of everything with other people's money. You know, it's not compassionate to give away other people's money. <laughs> That's just not what compassion is all about. And it's done damage. Now, uh, obviously, the money that was spent on health care and all of that was quite warranted. And we should do that. We should But, but this was almost, you know, it was almost $3 trillion, Jim. You know, as Everett Dirksen said, a trillion here, a trillion there. Sooner or later, it adds up to real money. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. They've wasted it and increased our debt load enormously with no effective benefit whatsoever. Yeah. All right. Sorry, so, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent with you, but it's so important to realize that government is not the answer. Government doesn't create resources. Government redistributes resources. And to see that clearly government spending is taxation. Imagine two farmers, Farmer A and Farmer B. Okay. That's the homely world. If Farmer B gets unemployment benefits, who do you think pays for them? It's Farmer A. Government spending is taxation. And and what they did in this CARES Act was raise taxes in a bad economy. That's not very smart.
1: And... uh now, Brenda over and Zach, we can open it up uh, for questions. I'm certain that, uh, that our listeners have many of them. You probably have a long queue.
3: Sure. So our first question is, what parts of the U.S. supply chain do you think will relocate from China in the near future? And do you think there will be any inflationary effect of that relocation?
2: Well, yeah, what will happen is I think supply chains will be re- rejiggered uh, to keep from relying on, on very distant foreign sources. I, mean, I don't think they're going to rejigger too much because of Canada and Mexico, but if you look at Vietnam or Thailand or China or some of these other countries, they're going to try to do to make it. I think what also is going to happen on some of these supply chains is the companies are going to hold much larger inventories of those supplies here in the U.S. to make sure that they're not caught short in any type of crisis situation, which, uh, which, which was showed up very clearly here. Uh, I hope that we don't lose all the gains from trade that occur with China. I hope that we keep our our trading relationships with China intact because China and the U.S. are perfect partners for really the gains from trade. I I, I like to say it this way, you know, uh, without China, there is no Walmart and without walmart there is no middle class or lower class prosperity in america free trade is really really important for america and i hope our our anger uh, at china doesn't force us to disengage in trade with them where it's really beneficial to the us but i think you're right everyone's going to look at their supply chains especially international supply chains to make sure that they are not weak weak links in that, those chains you know
1: Art, one of the things that 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 is quite interesting it's hard to look at this tragedy and say there's interesting things about it is this is the first time we've ever had a global pandemic with a globalized economy so it is going to be very interesting people like you and business students are going to be studying how business reacts to this i think for a long
2: time i think so i think this is uh we've had them before but never has the government intervened like it has this time even with aids and sars and some of these others. Uh, the government just did not take the occasion to really do a clamp down on the US and this occasion they did. Now that's true. It's but I a, mean,
1: we haven't had one that's as contagious. The point's well taken, but th- this is, uh, it is a kind of a black swan event, so.
2: It is, it's, you know, at first people thought it was much more contagious than it really turns out to be. And at first they thought it was much more deadly than, than it turned out to be. But nonetheless, they, they took the contagion, which they thought was super deadly, and they, they lock down the economy and, you know, that's a, that's a new phenomenon for us.
3: All right. Um, are you aware of anyone trying to quantify the damage done to the economy by the shutdown?
2: I would imagine a lot of groups are really trying to quantify the damage done to the economy. I don't know of any personally right now. I've looked at, you know, in the paper I did with Steve Moore, I do look at some of the damages done to the economy and how much it will drop in GDP. but. But nothing like the in depth type of work that should be done. But I imagine there are lots of groups, maybe at the Atlanta Fed, the Dallas, uh, the Dallas Fed, some of these others are really gonna get out big projects that will really try to quantify exactly what the damage done was. And not only what was done by the pandemic, but also what was done by the lockdown and the blind, you know, the, the sightless blocking of the economy. It was not, it was one size fits all. And that just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, that, it's, that, that the lockdown would be one size fits all. It just doesn't make sense.
1: You know, Art, I've done a lot of work on pandemics over the years. We talked about that a couple of shows ago. And um, in every meeting I've ever had with pandemic experts, this goes back about a dozen years, uh, they've all said to me, they don't like the idea of general quarantines. I mean it's it's interesting that we're basically imposing that here because it's never been a preferred tool of pandemic resilience
2: and it it doesn't make sense now Jim I mean when you look at it I mean the death rates if you look at the deaths there there are certain characteristics of those people who die from coronavirus uh, and over 60 your 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 risk go way way up I mean I think that it's a thousand to one versus a 20 year old versus a a 70-year-old, I mean, maybe it's even greater than that, the risk of dying. Uh, if you look at comorbidity, uh, that, you know, I don't think anyone has died, or at least very few have died who didn't have comorbidity factors, obesity, asthma, heart problems, I mean, you know, other problems in that line. So we have a very good panel of data uh, on just who is most at risk for this and why we wouldn't use that panel of data to allow people to, you know, who should be sequestered. Now, I'm 80 years old now. And, you know, uh, I realize it's a a risky thing and I take care of myself pretty damn well. I mean, I don't wanna go running out there in a a coronavirus group. Uh, But, you know, younger people, I don't think it's really a problem. And uh, uh, I just wish they'd do it. If you live in Wyoming, it's a very different story than if you live in New York City. Uh, You know, and depending on the business, if you're running a bar, that's full of people every night, good you know country music bar like downtown Nashville. You know, that's probably not a f- smart thing to do during a pandemic. <laughs> but you know, you can do selectively, use your brain, not some rule from Sacramento or from Albany or from wherever it may be. I don't think that makes sense, and I agree with your uh, epidemiologists who say that. The one person I have not seen interviewed by anyone and I really wish, she's the most amazing microbiologist I think in the world. And that's a lady named Jennifer Dudna. Mm-hmm. She is the one who's done all the work between uh, the battle between bacteria and viruses. You know, the CRISPR, yeah. uh, there, the CRISPR-3 and CRISPR-9. You know, she's done all of that stuff. She set up all these companies. She, she, is, the, she is the, I would say, in California terms, the Moken dude of, of this field. And yet I haven't seen her speak. If she spoke, I would listen. If anyone would get her to do it. and you got to get her book and go through all the stuff she did and how she discovered CRISPR and how it evolved four billion years ago between bacteria and viruses. You know, it became a a, a war, and the CRISPR goes in and just slices the genes of the virus, bang! And it, it, they've got less than a second once the gene once the virus hits the receptor on the cell, it takes it. They, the cell has less than a second to get that virus done, and just. It just neat, neat stuff she and her teams have done. It's just, I would love to see someone do that rather than seeing Fauci every night. I mean, you know, I know what he's saying. I know what he's going to, I can predict exactly what that man's going to say before he says it. That's not a very informative uh, piece of advice to me. I don't like
3: watching stuff that I know the answer is going to be presented. All
0: right, another question.
3: If, If you're correct about inflation, How long will the 10-year bond be under 2%?
2: You know, as long as the Fed bails out the Fed Treasury. As you know what's happened there. Now, we've talked about the Fed, and we talked about the deficits because of the CARES Act. What the Fed has done is supported the Treasury by buying all the bonds. And then what it's done is it uh, increased the monetary base, which I told you about the quill pen doing that. Those two together, they've held down interest rates now since Benny Bernanke started it in, what, 2008? 2009 through Janet Yellen through now Jerome Powell uh, we had one other period in our history that we did that as well and that was I think from 1942 through 1951 uh, it was called the Accord uh, pre Accord where all the function of the Fed was was to finance the deficits at low interest rates And that's what the Fed did and it lasted through 1951 and it could have gone on forever. So this type of funding policy by the Fed, could stay around for, for decades. I mean, really, there's no reason why it has to stop. Now it's going to hurt the economy. Don't get me wrong, but the fed is just buying all the government debt and just uh, opening up checking accounts to member banks and which is like printing inside money. It's not printing dollar bills or gold. That's what you've got to really distinguish, but what they do is they make liabilities yielding 25 basis points and they buy assets yielding 25 basis points, and they just guarantee that stays the same for as long as the eye can see. Okay, Zach.
3: Uh, are there any policies that you would suggest to address price gouging on uh, some items we saw like at the beginning of the pandemic with hand sanitizer and toilet paper?
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I read, really, especially not the toilet paper part. <laughs> but you know, what happens is, when you have a pandemic and a crisis hits, uh, you get certain products that are very scarce supply and the prices go up with those products. Now in a normal marketplace, you have no problem with the prices going up because those their increase in the prices uh, signal suppliers to supply more to the marketplace or people who hold inventories to dump the inventories or demanders to stop demanding the price. But now during a pandemic where you get a, a panicked purchase of these products, the higher the price, the more these people buy, You do need to have government intervention in those places, and you need to have a a regulated, restricted type of market um, for a while, not for very long, but for a little while to allow allow some sort of equity in the distribution of these products among demanders. And I think the grocery stores, uh, Costco's, these other places, Walmart, I think they've done a pretty good job of trying to allocate these products pretty fairly. I mean, we have a meat problem right now. Uh, and uh, the suppliers of meat can't find the places to process the plants, the processing plants, and the grocery stores, therefore, don't have the supplies coming from the processing plants, so there's a huge mismatch. There's an enormous supply of cattle wanting to be wanting to be slaughtered, and there's an enormous demand for the meat, but there's no one in the middle to be able to do the process to get it to the right place, so what you have happening is, uh, you know, meat is off the shelves, and people have to but I think the grocery stores, these stores have done a pretty good job in trying to allocate that fairly.
1: Yeah, I said at the beginning of this, Art, I thought there would be spot shortages, but I didn't think people had to panic. And uh, that's one area where, I, you know, I think I've been proven to be right. And I think the same thing about meat. You were having a problem with the Packers. Remember, I'm a uh, meat Packers, not the Green Bay Packers. Remember, I'm an old farm state senator.
2: So I do remember, I remember that. About
1: cattle or or governor
2: now. Mike Parsons is a cattle, a Western... Missouri Cattle Grow. i love I love the guy to be honest with you. He's just he's just so quintessential. Farmer from Missouri. I just yeah. love him. And the sheriff,
1: too, a good guy. I've known him 25 years.
2: Well, I haven't known him that long. He calls every now and then, and I just love chatting with him. So down home uh, yeah. and smarter than hell. I mean, he's ready.
1: And Because the Show Me Institute is a 501c3, those were personal and not political observations. They were exactly personal,
3: and the uh, that's true. How can the government how can the government incentivize getting pharmaceuticals more heavily produced in the U.S.?
2: Well, you can do it just by buying them, or just by subsidizing the the products themselves by giving you know for every ten you sell, you get a buck. Uh, so it can subsidize it that way to increase the supplies there, uh, and it can make it if it doesn 't want them produced abroad, it can always put a tariff on imported ones and make it that way i don 't know why the government would want to do any of those things uh, to be honest i don 't know why they wouldn 't just want markets to really respond correctly because once the government gets involved, it then becomes a bureaucratic decision which is not based upon economics it 's based upon i don 't know what the heck corruption morals redistribution, fairness, anything except economics. And I think you really want these things to be done on the basis of economics. And if you can buy better drugs that are more efficacious from abroad than you can produce them here, what not? why not? And you know, why not get a, a cheaper drug that does the same job? I mean, why not? And you know, um, that's what the whole idea behind the executive order, President Trump's executive order, for transparency in medical prices and services. And you know, I was very involved with the president on that, and he did a great job with that executive order of requiring providers of, of, of health services to tell what the transactions price is in consumable units and to provide information as to the quality of those services. I mean and transactions prices. As you know, when they do insurance, insurance prices when they clear, insurance prices have no relation whatsoever to the actual product itself. And when those prices clear on the Friday markets, the, uh, the insurance price is probably 35, 40 40 percent higher than the cash price. You can go into a hospital today if you want to and buy an, a hip replacement, shoulder replacement, whatever, and pay cash. And boy, you can't believe the discount you get if you do that. And you have no idea what these things cost when you go into a hospital. Your doctor says, you, you know, you need a CAT scan. Okay, fine. Do you ask what, how much it costs? No, you don't. Does your doctor even know what it costs? Has not a clue what it costs. What are the benefits and the costs? Do you have a good record of what these things are? No, you don't. Uh, I think it's very important that this 19% of the U.S. economy be brought back into markets where we know what the prices of the products are and what the qualities are and we have full transparency. All right, let me follow up on the question a little bit and
1: push a little bit on the, the original question about pharmaceuticals. So if Donald Trump gave you a call and said, right, look, uh, I've determined uh, that the competition with China is the top priority of our national security policy. And in fact, the challenge from China is the greatest long-term threat we face. And I don't like the idea that our country is dependent, heavily dependent on China for pharmaceuticals, which it is. So I would like to wean us away from that. I understand the dangers of that. But now you tell me um, from, the, uh, the, from the economist's point of view, what is the least inefficient, the best way of doing that? What would you tell him?
2: Let me start off by what I would tell him first. And I had a dream about this the other night where he asked me actually asked me this exact same question. Okay. And I would, what I'd first do is tell him the story of China. Now, uh, I, was, I went to China in October of 1970. I went with George Shultz and John Ehrlichman on Air Force Two. We did the pre-Kissinger trip to mainland China, and I was the only one, they were out doing stuff, and I stepped into mainland China one step and stepped back out just to say I did it. But I got all the briefings there. At that time, uh, China was under the whole control of the Communist Party. Since that 1970 to the present, what's that? Uh, Is that 50 years? 50 years. China has grown at about nine and a half percent per annum for the last 50 years compounded annually. Now, let me take you what that means. Uh, China has expanded real GDP per adult, all right, by about 34-fold. During the same time period, the U.S. has increased three-fold during that same period. Now, you know, I, I wanted just to allay fears. China, in spite of all that growth, is still about, real GDP per adult is still probably only about 12.5% that of U.S. real GDP per adult. But they've been growing enormously rapidly. I would I would suggest to all of us in the nicest way possible that we should try our very best to get along with China. We're both going to be in this world for generations and generations to come, and living in a hostile environment with a bad neighbor is not a good way to be. Now, if you're going to do it, all right. And this is I did with Casey in in uh, in 1982 when he was. And we had the President's Economic Policy Advisory Board. How can you really get a, a country with trade policies? You can't. Uh, if you want to, you can manipulate taxes, tariffs, and subsidies, and embargoes, and, and buyouts. Uh, you can do it really, really well uh, using those to harm the other country. Uh, and it can be done. This is all the real pure trade theory, which is my specialty in academics, is pure trade. If you read my book, International Economics in an Integrated World, it's all math. You can really get them if you want to. But I would suggest that that getting them will lead to a short-term uh, benefit for, uh, if you think we're in competition, but it will lead to very great long-term hostilities between the two countries. And, uh, you know, stopping China's growth is going to be very hard unless you can co-opt the Chinese to do something stupid in their own country. If you can get G, President Xi, to double tax rates in China, we could maybe beat them. But otherwise, they've got 1.3, 1.4 billion people that are all moving from the farms. They're all coming in to get educated. They've lowered tax rates dramatically. They've deregulated the economy. They're going to grow rapidly for a long time unless we can get them to kill themselves. But otherwise, you, you have short-term games you can do against China. But in the long run, I, I don't want to see what's going to happen in the next 40 years unless we try to work in parallel with them and cooperate with them. Not to give in to them. I'm not saying that. But we need we need theft protection from our ideas and our. But all of that stuff that Trump was so good at doing and getting from China, I don't think we should lose all that benefit.
1: I just want to be a fly on the wall when you have that conversation. Zach, go ahead next.
3: Uh, as states reopen, what should their primary focus be?
2: Uh, how to how to safeguard the population and make sure that economics can come back as fast as possible. They should make sure that those types of businesses. That are prone to the spread of the virus are not open right away and they're done with much greater safeguards make sure that the people who are most susceptible uh, to being damaged by the coronavirus are kept out of the marketplace for the longest time and the other people come in make sure that the I mean just 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 dumb simple answers. don't ride an elevator in New York elevators carry the stuff for three or four trips don't get in a subway you know, if you're gonna have anyone in the subway, make sure they're wearing masks, make sure they're wearing masks in elevators. These are just hotbeds for little pieces of, uh, of liquid to go and get people contagious and, and catch the thing. So there are lots of ways, you know, to keep that, uh, the spread down and just use your heads. Be very careful, be very deliberative, very purposive in figuring out just what profiles you're gonna use on businesses, locations, uh, people, individuals. I mean, old, uh, old fat men like me, there's a problem. <laughs> I don't have the comorbidity stuff, but, but it is a problem. And those people should behave differently than other people.
1: You know, I have to put a plug in for something, uh, art, uh, there's an increasing body of research that suggests
2: uh, smokers may be less.
1: Vulnerable
3: I know
2: I was going to, I was pro- promising myself. I would not mention that. But I think you're right. So <laughs> why? Uh,
1: the life is full of ironies? You know and, why? Uh, you know those of us who
2: get nicotine through one source or another may be a little bit less vulnerable. Well, no, I don't think that's true. I think it's just smokers. Uh, and really? the reason it's smokers is because the t- the tars and the uh, the things get in the lungs and irritate the lungs enormously and keep them always in this completely uh, attack zone. Where they're always fighting infection in the lungs, and the coronavirus is just one of those things that happens to get knocked off in the process. From what I heard, I don't know if it's true or not. By the way, I am not an expert on this. <laughs> no, I don't think either one
1: of us are. Zach,
2: why don't you I give think you me? might be, Jim. <laughs> are you a smoker? I used
1: to be a smoker, but my I'm married to this woman who badgered me about it so much that I God switched bless to- her. She's wonderful. I switched to these e-cigarettes. And they're a great source of nicotine, oh, and I don't mind. My
2: idea, that got, Brenda, I think I was the one who told you about the IQOs. Yeah. The heat right. sticks. This is put out by Philip Morris International. In fact, I've been very involved with them on this stuff. I mean, it's the most wonderful development in, 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 in health history. And I, you know, I just, everyone I see who's a smoker, I've talked to Larry Kudlow about it time and time again. Why wouldn't you just get the IQOs with the heat sticks and not do the combustion? And it'll, I think it'll extend your life a long time. Oh, the Brits are. Uh, the UK is pushing it hard. Well, uh, the one country that PMI is not allowed to sell into is the U.S. Yeah. They had an agreement. You know, Philip Morris uh, was one company, and they, they split it into two, which one was Altria, and the other one was PMI, Philip Morris International out of Lausanne. And that split gave complete market control of the U.S. to uh, Altria. And so, therefore, all, uh, Philip Morris is not allowed to do any marketing in the U.S. without the express uh, approval of Altria. My godfather, uh, Justin Dart, I don't know if you remember Justin Dart in the olden days with Reagan's best friend. That's why I got so close to Reagan and all that was my godfather. But we we owned, uh, we owned Kraft at the time. It was Dart Kraft, if you'll remember. And Kraft owned Philip Morris at the time. Now, they split it off later, but... This is an amazing product, this and uh, heat sticks. It, it, it has such a huge potential for help making smokers healthy because a lot of them won't quit, Jim. Yeah.
1: All right. We hijacked that thread, but Zach? Uh, what it. can
3: be done to incentivize the rehiring of employees that were laid off or furloughed during the shutdown?
2: The waiver of the payroll tax. Let me go through this very slowly with you. Uh, and I've been arguing it for a long time now. And I think the president, I've talked to the president on it a couple of times. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get it or not. But uh, the employee contribution to uh, Social Security and Medicare is 7.65% of their pay below, what, 120000 or something. So if you waive that tax, you give a bonus to the employees, to the working employees, of 7.65%. You, you with me on that? That makes it much more attractive for people to go to work because the pay is 7.65% higher. If you look at employers, all right, employers' contribution to Social Security and Medicare is also 7.65%. So if you waive that tax, employers have a 7.65% incentive to retain employees, hire new employees. And to pay their employees more than they otherwise would for higher productivity. So it incentivizes both the employees and the employers. Now the lovely thing about this is it hits every single employee in the United States period. Uh, It hits small businesses, it's large businesses, fat businesses, it has skinny businesses, it hits every business. So the government no longer is sitting there trying to pick winners and losers. Oh I like small companies, I like big companies, who the heck cares as long as you're employed and working and then So it keeps government from sitting there trying to pick winners and losers, which is the essence of corruption in government. The essence is when they can manipulate the things there. The other thing is I would make it to have a terminal date of December 31st, because if you has a terminal date, if you don't hire those employees now, you're gonna lose the benefits. They're not gonna be there in the future. So you really accelerate production as much as you possibly can, to boost that production now when we desperately need it. All right, and the last point I'm gonna say is, I did a paper with John Childs, maybe six, seven years ago, which looked at the cost of taxation. You know, you not only pay your taxes, which is a big cost, but the taxes you pay are the taxes the government collects. But then there are all sorts of expenses, out-of-pocket expenses, that go with the tax system hiring lawyers and accountants and uh, deferred income specialists and all sorts of people to do your accounting your taxes that's an out of pocket expense that the government doesn't collect the cost of audits of all of that stuff done by the government there but we found is that the out of pocket expenses now we looked at income taxes corporate and personal the out of pocket expenses are a little over 30 cents per dollar so therefore if the government's going to get a dollar to spend they've got to collect about a dollar 30 to be able to spend a dollar because 30 cents is just wasted in the the collection process. Now what I'm getting at here is a tax waiver does not have that toll for the troll. So therefore every dollar of tax waiver is about 30% more efficient and more effective than is a dollar of government spending because it doesn't have the toll for the troll. So therefore that's why I'm always in favor of tax cuts rather than spending increases because the benefits are always much higher because of the toll for the troll. I've now told you my story and I'm sticking to it. I'm writing down toll for the troll. Don't fact, you love that? I've gotten a lot of good things to say
1: I'm gonna use without giving you attribution, by the way. Zach, I don't know.
3: What's the <laughs> next What long-term one? impacts do you think the shutdown could have on pension plans?
2: Well, it's gonna take the returns on assets, make it lower. Uh, so that's gonna hurt pension plans. Uh, what's happened is on the pension plans, um, you're going to have national debts going to go from, let's say, oh, let's say net debt uh, owned by the, by the by the private sector, you know, uh, it's about 82% of GDP. I with the CARES and what else is going on and what pr- portends to happen, uh, U.S. debt as a share of GDP is going to go up to 107, 108, maybe 110% of GDP which puts us up there with Italy and Japan. Uh, that means that returns on assets are gonna be lower. And with the returns on assets, lower pension funds uh, will need greater contributions to be able to have the promises at the future. And I'm just praying that this doesn't happen is that the bad states get bailed out and they use those funds to cover their unfunded liabilities. I hope they don't do that, but there may also be that which would make it much worse as well. So. Uh, I am very worried about pension funds, and I'm I'm really really quite shocked at labor uh, supporting these liberal bailout stuff when in fact labor is the one that's going to get hurt the most by all these bad policies. So again, that's my story. I mean, these states. Let me take Kentucky. L- let me take Illinois. They have unfunded liabilities of about 50 percent of their total assets. All right, with huge unfunded liabilities. Now, why did they do? Why did they have those unfunded liabilities? because they increase pension benefits to workers, retired workers. They increase them without compensating a collection device to get the taxes in to fund those benefits that they're promising those people. That's why they have unfunded liabilities. Now, Tennessee has, is fully funded. Our pension fund is fully funded because we've kept the assets there. Now, what they've done is that these other states have, have given away the benefits without collecting the costs. If those states wanna solve their unfunded liabilities, every one of those states can unfund them like that. The way they do it is by putting in taxes on pension benefits and then putting the proceeds from those taxes into the pension fund itself. If you have a 50% unfunded liability, you can with a 30% tax on pension benefits, bang, and putting that money back in the pension system, you can have a fully funded system overnight. Uh, That's what these states need to do. They need to undo the giveaways they give and bring back the taxes then, or to reduce the benefits so that it comes out even. Uh, And every state with an income tax has the authority to be able to tax pension benefits uh, and put those funds back in the fund. It's a simple, quick solution to be done. No one's done it yet. In fact, most of the states now actually exempt pension benefits from taxes. Don't tax them the way they should, Uh, but they exempt them from taxes, which makes it even worse.
1: Art, I feel I should mention that our hosts, uh, the Show Me Institute has done a lot of good work in this area in terms of uh, of state and local pensions. And um, those who want to learn more can visit their website. Uh,
0: Zach? Yeah.
2: Well, I can also say that a a guy named uh, Rex Sinkfield and his wife Jeannie have done, I mean, amazing work in so many areas. They're right. such fine, contributing citizens to this planet. Uh, you know, you look at the chess club, you look at all of their contributions to social events as well as at good economics. Uh, what was it, Proposition A and B in and, and, and Missouri that they helped start and all that. These people are the most give back people I've ever seen in my life. They're just the salt of the earth.
1: When we get tourism going, and our, I don't know if you're aware of this, but tourism along with agribusiness are the two biggest parts of Missouri's economy. Everybody ought to come to St. Louis and visit the uh, chess club and the chess hall of fame. It's really also
2: do you realize I don't know if you realize this, Jim, but Missouri has the largest laughter curve in the world. Oh yes, it does.
1: Absolutely. Go to
0: your laughter curve. We
1: built it in anticipation of the laughter curve too. Zach, do we have time for one what I, I can't see the time on here?
3: Yeah, we have time for one more question. Uh, and that is what indicator or indicators should the average American pay attention to to track the recovery
2: uh, stock market the stock market is the only unbiased uh, unbiased uh, forecaster of future events uh, that I know of all the research at the University of Chicago has shown that it's the most efficient unbiased estimator of the markets. Uh, it combines the wisdom and knowledge of all the transactors that collectively it sees what no individual, himself or herself can see individually. It takes all the wisdom there. So I watch the stock market very, very carefully to tell me what the markets are expecting. Now, they're wrong a lot of the time, but they are unbiased and and very efficient. And I don't know of anyone who can beat the stock market systematically time in time out. So I use the market as my best forecaster of the future. You know, Art, uh... I actually did some work on the theory of efficient
1: markets at the University of Chicago for Frank Easterbrook in the early 1980s. Very oh, few wow.
2: Know that. Isn't that cool? Well, yes. you know, I, would, I taught there from 1967 through 1976. I went through all the ranks at the University of Chicago and with Gene Fama and all the others and uh, Harry Roberts and the whole crew. And it was just a wonderful time to be at Chicago. And, and after that experience, I decided that the uh, that
1: economic scholarship was not for me. So I'm. Well, going I doubt to very much that that. To you.
2: Um, okay. I am, I am yeah. interested in what attracted you to politics.
1: <laughs> yes, I know, but it's uh, it's uh, it's it's not as noble,
2: but it's a lot easier than what you do. Well, just so you know, you've been one of my heroes in politics for a long, long time, and I've thought you did a great job when you were in government. Just so you know. Vice versa. Brenda, I think we turn it back to you now.
0: Yes, you do, and, and I want to thank you, Senator Talon and Dr. Laffer, for a wonderful conversation. Before I, I give the information to listeners on how to access our information, is there anything more either one of you want to add to the conversation before I move on?
1: Not I, You know, subject, the only subject I didn't get into, Art, and I guess we just don't have time, is when you were discussing the downsides of the, uh, of the shutdowns, uh, I was going to ask you to get a little bit into health economics because it's my understanding that the uh, the elective procedures, which we're not performing now, are by and large the procedures that support the health of the health uh, of, of the health sector. In other words, we're really hurting our hospitals by not allowing them to do that sort of thing. But I, I guess we don't have time to get into that. And
2: we're hurting the people who need the elect- elective. Elective <laughs> is a very loose word for people who have... Postponable things—you've got the potential for cancer. You've got a lump in there. Well, that's an elective to wait three weeks, six weeks, while the damn cancer spreads and kills you. Right. Uh, all sorts of shoulders, all these things that hip, all of this stuff, colonoscopies, all of those things, which are disease present preventers—they're uh, not electives. They really can be. You don't have to do them today because you've got a heart attack. All right, but they are not electives. They are really critical to the life. Uh, of Americans and they really do add to our life expectancy. And by postponing them, they're killing people by doing that. Yeah.
0: Well, I wanna thank you again for being with us today. I wanna to thank our listeners for joining us. If you wanna learn more about our work, go to showmeinstitute.org. You can listen to our podcast at soundcloud backslash showmeinstitute. Please send us your email if you're interested in receiving invitations to future events. Again, thank you all for joining us, and and please stay safe. Have a good day.